This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. You can head over there to provide feedback and guest suggestions for the shows. I always love to hear your thoughts there. But to our episode today, and I'm thrilled to welcome back a very special person to the hot seat. When this guest was first on the show over two years ago, she was VP of Customer Success. Today, she joins us as COO of the same incredible company. And so with that, I'm delighted to welcome Alison Pickens, COO at Gainsight, the company that provides everything you need to turn your customers into your biggest growth engine. To date, Gainside has raised over $184 million in funding from some of the best in the business, including the likes of Lightspeed, Bessemer, Insight, Battery Ventures, and Salesforce Ventures, just to name a few. As for Alison, in her five years at Gainsight, her list of achievements is endless, from running all functions that drive value for Gainsight customers, now a 150-person team, to building out the corporate development function, to being the right hand to the CEO. And if that wasn't enough, Alison's also an entrepreneur in residence at Bessemer Venture Partners, and sits on the board of Rainforest QA. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Chorus.ai, the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that close deals and really work. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps way more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and many more amazing companies already using and loving Chorus. That's Chorus.ai. And if Chorus powers your sales team to be more effective. We need to discuss Pantheon, the web ops platform built for agility. Pantheon powers more than 300,000 websites, including some of the most well-known brands like Tableau and the United Nations. Pantheon's web ops platform gives superpowers to your web teams, making it simple to manage your websites, quickly iterate, and optimize to deliver engaging digital experiences and provide the fastest hosting and highest level of security and uptime. And finally, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to David J, founder at Agree.com. Agree.com provides attorney-approved contracts and payments for businesses and creatives. Smart creatives and businesses use Agree.com to make their business serve their life, not the other way around. Hi, Harry. You know, we view startups kind of like sailing. It's really important to get the wind at your back. You know, you have so many forces going against you. When you raise your sail up and you see where the market is blowing, what you can do is then build an MVP, test it out, see if the market likes it. And from there, you can build it out into a full version one. Thanks for that, David. And absolutely, being decisive is really important for successful growth. And for more on successful growth, WePay offers payments you can bank on. Now a JP Morgan Chase company, it offers you payments with bank scale and SMB distribution channels in addition to modern technology. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry to find out more. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough from me. And so now, without further ado, I'm very, very excited to hand over to Alison Pickens, COO at Gainsight. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Alison, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. As we said, it's been two years since our round one. So thank you so much for joining me for what will be a very special round two. Thanks for having me back. It was great the first time and I'm excited for the second time. Well, as am I, but I want to get the ball rolling. And for those that maybe missed our round one, tell me, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and come to be COO at the incredible Gainsight today? Well, I've been at Gainsight almost six years, actually, which in the realm of tech might feel like an eternity. But because we've been through, uh, fortunately, through a lot of growth, it's felt like actually, you know, I've been through several different companies over my time at Gainsight. I initially found out about Gainsight and customer success because I previously worked in investing at a company called Bain Capital. 
And Bing Capital Ventures led the Series B round back in 2013. So I got to know Nick, our CEO, through the board member, as well as another board member I got in touch with from Battery and um, really was excited about his vision and especially about how there was such a notable secular trend in the rise of customer success. As companies were shifting from on-premise software, perpetual license models to the SaaS subscription model, they were realizing actually that they would be making money over time, you know, in a trickle from their clients. So actually there was now a business imperative to invest in the client experience and ensure that these companies were avoiding a leaky bucket. So um, I was excited about that growth in that market and about, you know, how actually there was now a business imperative to do the right thing for your clients. I totally agree with you. And I love the alignment there between kind of the company and the client's success. I do have to ask, and I didn't expect to go off schedule this early, but you mentioned the hyper growth of Gainsight and how it's almost felt like different companies in your tenure there. Can I ask, specifically with regards to the customer success function, how does that change and alter with scale specifically? It definitely changes a lot. I like to think there are a few different stages for customer success, which actually map really nicely to David Scott's model of a startup journey, uh, David from Matrix Partners. Um, you know, he talks about in stage one of a startup, you're looking to pursue product market fit. In stage two, you're looking to figure out your go-to-market. And then stage three, you're actually scaling that go-to-market. In stage one, when we're pursuing product market fit, customer success is really important for building empathy with your clients, understanding truly what are their pain points and how can we evolve the product over time to address those pain points. Often founders are building products for their own needs in the early days, but as they build their client base, they realize actually it's not enough to have that firsthand understanding with the pain point. Actually, you need to truly listen to the pain points of your early clients. CSMs can be critical for that. Then in stage two, that go-to-market fit stage, it's really important for your customer success managers to be thoughtful problem solvers, figuring out how to essentially automate their own work, optimize their workflow, and create a customer success playbook that eventually in stage three, you can scale in a repeatable way. Then in stage three, we tend to see um, a lot more specialization. We see uh, support functions cropping up, CS operations functions, sometimes account management services become important. And so you tend to scale through greater specialization, selling services to offset the cost of your investment in your clients and further automation through the product and in-app walkthroughs and things like that. I love that kind of segmented CS change through the stages. I mean, one thing that's kind of prevalent throughout all the stages, there is the element of KPI setting and really goal setting. And when we spoke about it before, you said about your thoughts on kind of strategic planning at the company level. So I did want to start on this. And what does a strategic plan really mean to you? I guess it's a, it's quite a broad question, but what does it mean to you and what's included in it? Well, I'll say you know, strategic planning, first of all, is super relevant to customer success because strategic planning is the process by which you align all functions at your company around the most important priorities in your organization. And in order to deliver successfully on the needs of your clients, you need everyone in your organization oriented around the customer. So for all the customer success leaders out there, if you don't have a cross-functional strategic planning process that's working for you, I would say this is a core thing that you should implement. 
To me, strategic planning, like I said, is about alignment and it's about alignment around um, this essential unit of the OKR, uh, which is not a term that I came up with. Um, John Doerr came up with it and it stands for objective and key result. Key result refers to a metric, a target that you're looking to achieve. And objective is um, sort of the more strategic, it's the spirit of the metric. It's the way that you're going to tackle that metric. An example of an objective might be elevate the way that we are working as a company with our clients by selling to a higher level buyer as measured by a key result or KR, which is the total bookings that we have at our company. So notably, I think at the highest level of your company, the KRs should tie to the key metrics in your PL. There might be a KR related to bookings. There might be a KR related to your gross margin, to your operating margin. And the objectives that you pursue will be tied to those KRs. So once we identify the most important priorities of our company, we also have to ensure that the primary focus of our team members is in line with those priorities. Totally agreed with you in terms of that alignment and the importance of it. Can I ask, how does the the creation of OKRs look like to you in terms of who's involved? How long does it take? What's that actual process in terms of the setting of them themselves? Well, I can't say that we've 100% mastered this at Gainsight. We have had our strategic planning process for a couple of years, but this has been the first year where it's been a really big focus for us um, at the granular level. So we've learned a lot along the way. I think there are a couple key components to creating a great strategic plan. One is you need that feedback from across your organization on what's going well and, and what's not going well. You know, Some people might call that bottom-up feedback if we truly believe in inverted or organizational structure where actually leaders are servants supporting the rest of their team, then perhaps the team members are on the top, leaders are on the bottom. But in any case, we're trying to gather feedback from around the organization on what's going on. And you know that gathering can be conducted through roundtables, offsites, through anonymous feedback forms, and other types of feedback gathering mechanisms that should be conducted on an ongoing basis. And I think a, a really healthy company. In addition, often there should be some sort of forum where an extended leadership team can get together and talk about what they're noticing in the business. And then from there, you want to make sure that you are designing a strategic plan that's also in line with your financial objectives. So there's often an iteration process between the strategic plan and your financial plan as well. Very important that they're tied together. If as part of the strategic plan, you decide that an initiative is going to be super important, but actually in your financial plan, you don't have the budget to invest in that initiative. Obviously, that's going to create some issues down the road. Totally. No, I absolutely agree in terms of that resource allocation constraint. I do have to also, in terms of the actual planning themselves, really more with the key results where you're driving towards certain tangible metrics. How do you think about setting key results that are both achievable and challenging, but also won't cause massive disincentive and real kind of damage to the team morale if not hit? How do you think about striking that balance? This is a really important question. There's a type of metric that could be called a moonshot, which is it's a shot in the dark. You're doing your best to achieve something that is unlikely. It's high risk, but it's high reward. In situations like that, it's important to note that that number is a moonshot. And you might actually compensate your team members not on that number, but on some other basis. For example, on whether they've achieved objectives that are more within their control. There's another kind of key result, which you could call a roof shot which is, you know, the roof is within reach. It's something that we can achieve and therefore we need commitment around it. And it might be that compensation and other forms of performance management are tied to that roof shot. 
there are also situations in which a metric might be something that we believe to be important, but we haven't measured it in the past. So we don't have historical knowledge about what level of that metric is achievable. In those situations, what I recommend is starting to track the metric for a period of time to get a baseline. And then after that, using that metric as a a KR. Can I ask, once the KRs are displayed and then we run through the process and there's a result, whether we've hit it or not, how do you think about doing a post-mortem post, either successful or not? Do you do it on both sides of the equation if successful and if not successful? And what does that structure for the post-mortem look like? Definitely. During the quarter, when we're tracking progress against our KRs, we always want to make sure that when forecasting to be below our key result, the target, that we have uh, an understanding of why it is that we're forecasting lower than the target. What's actually driving that? Similarly, if we're forecasting above the target, we want to know what's contributing to that success. So we have postmortems, which I'll get to, but we also want to make sure that we're actually learning along the way. In addition, when we're forecasting below a KR during the quarter, we want to make sure that we have what we call a path to green to actually achieve that target. Um, a path to green can actually be a simple waterfall chart where you're showing what are the steps that you need to take that will contribute to meaningful improvements in that KR up until the target. Then at the end of the quarter, once we've actually seen where we landed relative to our KRs, we want to, as you said, do retrospective and a learning. One of the things we started doing recently is following the Amazon model, but more of actually writing up Word documents about layout, what we learned and why. Sometimes actually writing something is a forcing function for testing your understanding. So it can be pretty easy for anyone to put together a slide, but it's a lot harder to actually write what you're thinking. I totally agree with you. I think my kind of thinking definitely when making investments and doing memos uh, exceeds just kind of normal thinking when you do the memo itself and write it down. But I do want to continue though with the theme of kind of expansion across the org because we chatted before and I titled this next element when product management marries customer success. I thought that was rather brilliant as a title, I have to say. But I do want to talk about kind of the integration of the two. So what makes you say about this incredibly close alignment between product marketing and customer success, almost similar to that of sales and marketing before? What's your thinking here? Definitely. I think there's always been an essential collaborative relationship that needs to take place between customer success and product management. But I don't think anyone fully realized how married these two functions need to be in order to drive the success of the company until recently. So we do like to think of product management and customer success as being the new sales and marketing. It's driven by both sides. In customer success, we tend to see a very important pain point, which is that these teams are trying to figure out how to scale. Now, the most scalable asset in your organization is the product itself. So we find that in customer success teams where the CSMs are plugging gaps in the product by creating workarounds and band-aid solutions, they have an opportunity to work more closely with their product teams to help the product team fill those gaps. That way, the customer success team can spend less of their time on the technical troubleshooting, the band-aid solutions, and more of their time fostering the path to renewal, to success, and in even helping to drive expansion over time. Now, from the product team's perspective, often the number one pain point is knowing whether you're building the right things, getting greater confidence around your roadmap. The customer success team has a wealth of information that can be valuable. Now, interestingly, from the product team's perspective, the customer success team is not often sharing feedback in using language and in a way that tends to resonate with product teams. I tend to find that 
customer success people are often situational thinkers. They're very good at looking across the situation and all the people involved, the product features, the different dynamics, and understanding holistically what's going on with the client. But product teams don't tend to think about problems on an individual client-by-client basis. They're more systems thinkers, looking all the way across a client base and, and looking at the trends. So I think customer success with its situational thinking can point to anecdotes and hunches that the product team can then explore in terms of developing hypotheses for detecting trends. So both of these functions truly do need each other. And I think we need to create better processes and systems for allowing them to collaborate. I totally agree in terms of the need for seamless collaboration between the two. I actually had a guest on the show though recently that said something very interesting. He said, I don't actually think that customer success should be amazing because if customer success is too good, then they will cover up blind spots in product that need to actually be solved by product. How do you think about this? Is that actually pretty unfair and it's solved by seamless communication between the two? Or do you think he's actually got a point in terms of they can't be too good to cover blind spots? I absolutely agree with that. I do think that, and I've seen it actually on our own team at Gainsight, sometimes when the customer success manager takes so much ownership, they run the risk of solving the problem in a way that's not scalable. And so, you know, I think what we need to do is redefine what it means to be a great or amazing customer success manager. Perhaps amazing customer success managers don't try to own the problem entirely on their own. They see part of their job as relaying feedback to the product team who can then help create an ever better product experiences and also help that customer success manager scale their job even more. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you in terms of that scalability. Speaking of the scalability, though, and one way that a lot of people think about scaling CS today is through ABM in a way, but pushed down through the funnel. How do you think about using content as a scalable method of customer success today? And is that central to your thinking or actually it's still removed from the core customer relationship? Content is really important. Historically, content usually took the form of PowerPoint presentations that a customer success team would share with its clients, perhaps an executive business review views or best practice sharing sessions historically often took the form of knowledge-based articles. Over time, we started using online communities. So there'd be wealth of content built up there, largely buyer clients. More recently, we've been seeing in-app walkthroughs as being an important venue for distributing content. And I think that's often the best way to do it. Share content with your clients when they need it in the place where they are operating, which is your product. I love that in terms of in-app walkthroughs. And I actually, I haven't seen that as much. So that's super interesting. Speaking of kind of in-app walkthroughs and a driver for both functions essentially is driving adoption and increasing adoption. What's been your biggest lessons, Alison, on how to measure effective adoption? It's not actually as easy and simple as it seems. It's not. I think one of the biggest challenges and also opportunities for companies is to identify what's that North Star adoption metric that we're all aiming for. You know, it might be number of times that your clients are completing a certain high value action in your product. And as a company, you might want to see the volume of those actions go up over time. It might be the best proxy for the health of your client base and also the growth of your company. Often as well, that North Star metric actually drives the pricing model, for example, in more consumption-based pricing models within companies. So actually that North Star metric truly could be a revenue driver as well. Now, once we've identified the North Star metric, the question is, how does it apply to the work of customer success and also product management? 
In customer success, we're often looking at problems and opportunities at a customer level. The more customers that we move in the direction of health, the better. It's a risk sometimes, actually, if we're looking at total aggregate volume of a particular adoption action in customer success, because that volume might be concentrated in only a couple of clients. So it may not actually represent whether your client base as a whole is healthy. So what we need to do in customer success is create a health score, which is based on that North Star metric. Essentially, we're trying to move as many clients as we can into the green level of that health score based on that North Star metric that that particular client is representing. Then on the product side, product managers tend to think about adoption metrics more on a feature level or a module level. So in that world of product, we might want to look at how do we contribute to that North Star metric through the appropriate adoption of specific features. Can I ask, in terms of the accountability, do you have split accountability then between the two different functions of product and CS? Is there a unified accountability metric that one's driving toward? How do you think about kind of effective accountability establishment with product and CS? I do see many companies actually increasingly having joint accountability for that North Star metric across the two functions. That can sometimes create great collaboration. On the other hand, it can sometimes create a dilution of accountability, particularly if you don't have the right culture. So in that situation, I think it can be valuable to have two different contributing metrics for each of those two functions. For example, in customer success, the primary metric might be the average health score across our client base, which as I mentioned earlier, could be driven by that North Star metric. Whereas in the product organization, the metric might be more oriented toward measuring the ROI of a new feature release or the adoption of the product overall. Got it. No, that makes total sense. I think I can get my head around the segmented accountability more easily. I do want to touch on one element though that I spoke to Nick before the show about, and I would love to have more context on this because he left me with a cliffhanger. And he said, you have to speak to Alison about creating elements as a prescriptive CS methodology. He left it there very kindly of him. So tell me, what did he mean by this? And how does that come into the fore with your thinking today? I love that cliffhanger. So what he's referring to is the elements of customer success. This is sort of a knock off of the periodic table in chemistry, which some of us might remember from high school or maybe later if we were particularly interested in the subject. We created the elements of customer success based on tons of conversations we were having with customer success leaders across the industry, understanding what their pain points are. Each element is a pain point or objective that a customer success leader might have. And over time, through these conversations, we've built up all the best practices that allow you to actually fulfill that objective or element. Now, it, what's interesting is that these elements are mapped to different stages of maturity in customer success. So as you move from one stage to the next by rolling out these elements, actually you achieve very meaningful improvements in gross retention and net retention. As you move from stage zero to three, you achieve a 13 percentage point increase in gross retention on average and a 33 percentage point increase in net retention. So there's a lot of data to support that rolling out these elements is a good idea. I absolutely love that. Is it actually a periodic table that you've created? I mean, is it structured in that way? Structured that way. Yeah, actually, you could Google it and you'll see it. I'm excited to Google it. I haven't seen that before. I do want to finish before we move into the quick fire on, on a topic that I'm super interested by because I speak to obviously a lot of investors on the show and a lot of them, when I speak to them about services revenue, they pull this face and then stress some form of concern or another. And so I want to ask, how do you feel about services revenue? And is it always bad? I think services sometimes has a bad name in the SaaS industry. You know, we are software people. We're trying to automate things, create technology that scales. I think the reality is that sometimes we underestimate the 
value of human interaction with our clients, both in and of itself, but also for learning purposes so that we can know what to build in our product. Now, what's tricky is that sometimes it's hard to actually invest in that human effort that can contribute to learnings and also greater outcomes for clients beyond what the software can do out of the box. So in situations like that, it's beneficial to us to sell services merely to offset the cost of that human investment. We're not looking to create a super profitable services business, especially in the earlier stages of the company. We're merely looking for ways to sustainably invest in that kind of human interaction. You know, what I recommend is when you're in the early stages of the company, even if you've got a self-serve model, have people on your team, including executives, but also customer success folks, services folks who are reaching out to your clients to listen, understand how the product is solving their pain points or not, and then feed feedback to the product, as we mentioned earlier. As you grow larger, uh, when you're serving small clients, your products just start to automate that human work and automate the services away so that you don't have to sell services to your clients. Now, on the enterprise side, actually, services can be a very interesting lever for driving higher renewal rates and also driving expansion. In the enterprise, especially, clients are often looking for advisory help. They want the vendor to truly be a thought leader on overall their strategic objectives, not just on solving tactical problems. And if you can frame yourself as being a strategic advisor to your client through advisory services, you will likely sell more software. So I'm totally aligned to you in terms of the benefits, in terms of retention, upsell, what it does for product evolution and that kind of those feedback loops. I guess my question to you is, at what stage does it become an an unhealthy ratio of revenue? And where's the balance between the two? Is 80-20 the right split between kind of software to services? What's your thoughts on the degree to which it's good? I think it really depends on the company. And I know Tomas from Redpoint actually has produced some interesting analysis about attach rates and services and how they compare with valuations. I recommend actually looking up some of this blog post on that. What I would say is, even though it does depend on the company, I think in the enterprise, based on what the data that I've seen, it's quite normal for enterprise-oriented companies with more complex products to have attach rates that are north of 50%. What that means is you're selling 50 cents of services for every dollar of subscription revenue that you bring in. And then you know on the SMB side, your attach rate might be zero or it might be 10 or 20%. Got you. No, that totally makes sense. And I love Tom's writing on it. We mentioned like upsell and adding extra juice to the revenue stream there. I do want to talk about one further element before the quick fire though, which is another way to add extra juice to the revenue, which is obviously expansion of product line, something that you at Gainsight have done incredibly well. So I'd love to hear your learnings on what the journey has been like from a single product company to a multi-product company. What have been some of those learnings and takeaways for you from that transition? Great question. I think a lot of companies are grappling with how do I handle customer success, especially, and also sales in a multi-product environment. You know, for us, I think there have been a few things that have been critical to our success in the transition. One is having a holistic framing of your products and how they work together. We don't want to be holding companies. We want to be software companies where the products mutually reinforce each other. There are benefits to a client from using multiple of your products beyond just the silo value that they get from each product. So having sort of a holistic framework that explains how these products relate to each other and how 
how, how your clients should consume these products over time, perhaps along the maturity curve is very valuable. The second thing is that you want to be really clear on your organizational structure and how it's equipped to sell and deliver and build multiple products. And when you're starting out with a given product line, it can be valuable to have specialized teams that are building, selling, and, and delivering them. That ensures that you have a focus group, that this product isn't diluted by your core business, by the focus there. It ensures that you have a core team that can learn over time on what's required to make this product successful. But assuming that you achieve some initial success, at some point, you'll want to integrate that specialized team back into your core business. No, I totally with you. Can I ask, in terms of the integration back, are there some core challenges that you faced or maybe you see others facing in the ecosystem around you that you think should be highlighted? I think it's important for folks to understand the timeline for having a specialized team and the intention in the long run to integrate. For example, your core team needs to understand that this other team's a specialized team that needs to be supported. It's not meant to distract the core team. It's to the benefit of the core team to have the specialized team and that over time, greater collaboration will be created. So I think the communication around that is very important. No, I do agree with you in terms of that communication. I do want to finish on my favorite element, as you know of any episode, being the quick fire, Alison. So I say a short statement and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to rock and roll? Let's do it. How often should CS check in with their customers? What's the right cadence? It definitely depends on the segment and your product. I would recommend having a cadence for executive business reviews, stakeholder alignment calls where executives from your company are talking with executives at your clients, and also separately a process for reaching out to your clients when the data warrants it, when adoption is heading in the wrong direction or the right direction and you'd like to ask for some sort of um, advocacy engagement from your client. But you know, in general, I would recommend letting your touch bases with your client be informed by a success plan where you map out the objectives the client has and then together you come up with plan of action for pursuing those objectives. So instead of having a lot of recurring calls, we should be letting the success plan drive the touch points. Hedgehog versus the frog. Which one are you, Alison? I love this. By the way, do people have context on hedgehog and frog? Do you want me to explain that? I have absolutely no idea myself, so I would love some context. <laughs> it sounds like Nick asked you to do this. That's amazing. This, is, this, um, this was Nick. <laughs> okay, <laughs> amazing. So Isaiah Berlin is a philosopher who wrote an essay about the distinction between a hedgehog-type thinker and a fox-type thinker. The hedgehog has one defense, uh, which is their prickles. So hedgehogs tend to think about the world in terms of a unifying single framework. Foxes, on the other hand, see the complexity in the world. They see the world in terms of its multiplicity, there being many things. I would call myself a fox with aspirations of being a hedgehog. I see all the different complexity and my constant pursuit is to try to synthesize all the complexity of the world into that single framework. If on a tight budget, how should one staff a CS team? If you've got a tight budget and you're a startup, I recommend having a dual role between product manager and customer success manager. That way, you have a single person who is gathering feedback from your clients, learning from the client experience, and then trying to improve the client experience by building better products. What would you most like to change about the world of SaaS today, Alison? 
What I would love to see is a SaaS industry and a tech industry more broadly that's focused on building what I call human-first products. I think often we build with the goal of higher engagement, more users, greater conversion, scale. I think we need to put the humanity back into the products that we build. Actually, I'm not the first one to say this. Katarina Fake has actually been saying this for many years. And I think it's a really important mission that we should all be adopting. Alison, it's been such a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for putting on with my dulcet British tones for one more episode. And it's been so much fun. Thanks, Harry. This is great. Absolutely love having Alison on the show. And if you'd like to see more from Alison, you can find her on Twitter at Pickens Allison. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do that on Instagram at hdebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Chorus.ai, the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that close deals and really work. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps way more effectively, or close winning talk tracks. Head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and many more amazing companies already using and loving Chorus. That's Chorus.ai. And if Chorus powers your sales team to be more effective, we need to discuss Pantheon, the web ops platform built for agility. Pantheon powers more than 300,000 websites, including some of the most well-known brands like Tableau and the United Nations. Pantheon's web ops platform gives superpowers to your web teams, making it simple to manage your websites, quickly iterate, and optimized to deliver engaging digital experiences and provide the fastest hosting and highest level of security and uptime. And finally, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to David Jay, founder at Agree.com. Agree.com provides attorney-approved contracts and payments for businesses and creatives. Smart creatives and businesses use Agree.com to make their business serve their life, not the other way around. Hi, Harry. You know, we view startups kind of like sailing. It's really important to get the wind at your back. You know, you have so many forces going against you. When you raise your sail up and you see where the market is blowing, what you can do is then build an MVP, test it out, see if the market likes it. And from there, you can build it out into a full version one. Thanks for that, David. And absolutely, being decisive is really important for successful growth. And for more on successful growth, WePay offers payments you can bank on. Now a JP Morgan Chase company, it offers you payments with bank scale and SMB distribution channels in addition to modern technology. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry to find out more. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. And as always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you another fantastic episode next week.